Well, this morning, we're going to talk about sex. Some of you went, ah, that's not what I signed up for. Maybe others are going, bring it. <laughs> Let's do it. Well, this morning, I want to talk about our faith as it relates to sex and sexuality. It's a subject that I have not talked about directly from the pulpit for a long time, uh, except maybe in passing or in the context of other sermons or certain passages that we're dealing with. Um, it's a very broad subject, and uh, you know, it's funny when you start out on a topic like this, I, I was praying about it and looking at a ton of resource material, and where you start out is not always where you end up. You know, so you start out thinking you're going one place and God takes you somewhere else. And, and so this morning, I, I found that God was leading me to spend a lot of time in the Genesis creation story, looking at God's design for sex and sexuality and their expression, because that's where it all starts. It all starts with God's design. You know, we live in, I don't have to tell you that we live in a very sexually infused and confused time. Everything seems to be sexually charged. And, and many are struggling with how to respond to all these many expressions of sexuality that we're faced with. And I know that some of you may be struggling with your own feelings and attractions and wondering what God has to say on this subject and, uh, and those that are related to it. What does he say about how we were made and about how we are supposed to live when it comes to sexual expression in relationship? Uh, as you may have heard, of course, some of you, a lot of you have signed up already. We're having a special course that's starting next week. It's called Grace and Truth 1.0. And uh, it'll be next Sunday morning during the Bible for Life hour. It'll run concurrent or at the same time as the class that Rose is teaching. And um, we're going to go into a lot more depth about a lot of these subjects when we do that course or start that course. This morning, I want to share... Um, as I said, what God laid on my heart to share. So we want to lay a foundation of something that we hope will give us a basis for further discussion. As we focus on God's design and sexuality and creation, we need to have uh, God's truth. We have to have God's wisdom as we approach that. And we have to have a whole lot of measure of love for others who don't necessarily agree with us on these subjects. And so would you pray with me as we get started? Heavenly Father, you are the great creator. At your word, everything that exists came into being. You created humans in your image. You designed us to be your crowning creation. We worship you, and we're thankful for all that you've made. We thank you for the gift of Jesus, your son. Though we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, you gave your son Jesus as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can have a close and fulfilling relationship with you. And I thank you that Jesus died for all of us because he loves all of us. We ask that you would reveal yourself in your word and in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's tempting, it's easy when we start talking about subjects like this to talk in abstract terms, but we're not talking about something abstract. We're talking about things that have a real life effect on people around us. And, and you know, regardless of what we believe, and uh, we most certainly will end up disagreeing with one another at one point or another, uh, we need to listen to one another. 
and we need to treat each other with great respect. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says, you know, when we share truth, we need to share truth in love. We're called to share grace and love for those we already count in our tribe and for those with whom we disagree sometimes. And that's true on any subject, isn't it? Not just this subject, but on everything from sex to politics, uh, there are going to be times when we disagree. So we need to learn how to do that well and to have dialogue. So where do we start with this huge subject? Well, we're going to start with the Bible. I've lost my clicker. There it is. Thank you. <laughs> As uh, a Christian, my source for truth about belief and practice, it has to start with the Bible. That used to be self-evident, but that's not so much today. You know, today as people read the scriptures, as we go through, we, we sometimes pick and choose what we want and what we don't want to obey. We see things that we don't like. We see things that we're uncomfortable with, and we skip over some of that sometimes. Sometimes it's things that challenges us, uh, things that challenge us about the way that we believe or the way that we live our life. And sometimes we just pitch that out, skip over it, choose to ignore it. We go looking for some alternate explanation for what the Bible teaches. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, when we talked about baptism, as a church, we believe that the Bible is God's authoritative and inspired word. The Brethren in Christ Church began almost 250 years ago now, and we began with Bible study and baptism. People were baptized, choosing to obey what they were reading in their Bible as they read it together. We believe that the Bible has been given to us to learn how God has related to his people down through many, many generations, down through human history, and it's also given to us so that we can learn about how to have a relationship with him and how to walk with him intimately in the present. And living for Jesus leads us into a very glorious future, doesn't it? If we're going to follow God and live as Christ's followers, then we have to start with the Scripture. Now, a lot of people have asked me what the church's uh, belief about creation and sexuality is, so I want to put that statement up here, but if you have a bulletin this morning, you'll notice on the insert that's in the bulletin on the back side of it in the sermon notes, I've printed that there so you might have that in hand. Um, we met many times over the years and prayed together and sought God and studied the scriptures, and this is the current, as of this year, this is the current statement that we have on sexuality. God gave human sexuality a good place in creation. Being either male or female is integral to who we are and provides for the full expression of our humanity. God has given us standards for expression of our sexuality that are necessary for proper relationships among people. Human sexuality is affirmed within the chaste single life or a lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. Now, that's our, our current 2022 revision as of the conference that we just had a few weeks back. Now, this statement is short. It's to the point. It doesn't really mince words, does it? It says things very clearly about, about what we believe. God created us in a certain way and has certain intentions for how we express our sexuality in relationships. 
So regardless of where we're at right now in society, humanity had a starting point. We began somewhere. We began with God's forming us and God breathing his own spirit into us and blessing us. I say us, I mean humans, right? Uh, we want to look at the Genesis creation story, and if you have your Bible with you this morning, you might want to follow along. We're, we're going to be spending some time in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. That's right at the beginning of the Bible, and uh, we're also going to put those words up here on the screen. Regardless of how you approach Genesis 1 and 2, the primary purpose is to tell you that it was God who created all things. He is the author of human life, and he is the creator. And, in, and here it, it says, let us make. And so we're talking about the trinity of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. On the sixth day, it says in Genesis 1, God created man. And so it says, then God said, then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So that's the, the creation of man in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, the creation story doesn't just end there. there. You may be familiar with the fact that in Genesis chapter 2, the story is retold. Um, but before we get there, it's interesting. God says this at the end of his creation. He says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Completed. There's this beautiful word that it means finished. It means it doesn't need anything else. It doesn't need any additions, any changes. So then we know that on the seventh day, God rested. So now we move to the, the second story or the second telling of the same story. It's told from a slightly different perspective, and it teaches us a few more things about God and, and who he is and how he created us. Chapter 2, starting at verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found, and so the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So, I want to stop there, and I want to kind of skip through these two passages and, and, and see what the Bible has just said about humans and how we were created. First of all, it, it tells us that we were created in the image of God. Male and female, we were created in the image of God. 
Now, how does that work? What does that mean? Well, it means that we reflect who God is, right? We were created to reflect God's character, to reveal his nature. And we have the capacity to do all kinds of things, to show all kinds of, of parts of God, like his compassion, his love, his justice, his creativity, his kindness, and God's holiness. Every single one of us was created in God's image and has that capacity. Second thing it tells us is that we were created men and women. We were created as men and women, biologically male, biologically female. Now, I try to avoid the word gender these days because, you know, when I grew up, gender meant something slightly different than it seems to me in this day. Um, it, in fact, from about the 16th century, gender and sex meant pretty much the same thing. Um, and they were often interchangeable. But in later 20th century, they started being used differently. And uh, the way it's used now, gender uh, seems to mean male, female, and all kinds of spaces in between those two points. Today, gender often refers to feelings and desires more than it does to biology. In creation, God created two biological forms for humans. He created male and he created female. The third thing it tells us is that God created us with the capacity to procreate, to make more humans, to go forth and multiply, however you want to express it. Your body was made to be paired with a human of the opposite sex for reproduction, first to populate the earth. You have body parts that only work to create other human beings when they are together with people of the opposite sex. And that's pretty basic biology, isn't it? You may feel differently, but your body was created very binary to be male or female and to pair with someone of the opposite sex. The fourth thing it tells us is about being one flesh in marriage. Now, this isn't a dig about singleness. Paul has a lot to say about singleness as you get into the New Testament. Um, but in terms of human sexuality, in relationship, it says we are to be one flesh in marriage. Now, that sounds a little sexual, doesn't it? But there's a lot more to it than that. It's more than just a sexual union. When I perform a, a marriage ceremony, it's more than just a bunch of words and a piece of paper, as we often hear people say. You know, people, oh, I don't need to get married. That's just a bunch of words and a piece of paper. But it's a whole lot more to that than when, when in, in God's opinion. You ever accidentally glued your fingers together? I was working a few weeks ago with Gorilla Glue, and, and I was working on something, and, and I guess some had leaked, and, and I went to do something, and I, I, well, I was doing the Star Trek thing, you know, but not on purpose, because <laughs> these fingers were kind of glued together, and, and I'm pulling them apart, and you know when it came apart, it hurt. You ever done that? <laughs> it's really easy to do if you're not careful. Think of marriage as God's crazy glue. You know, when it says one flesh, there is a spiritual concept there. God is joining us together in spirit in a way that is not intended to be separated again. 
And so it's kind of like being glued together. That's why divorce hurts so much when it happens, because we're tearing apart. We're pulling apart something that, that was meant to stay together. When I perform a marriage ceremony, it's God who's doing the joining. I'm doing the ceremony. We're acknowledging what God is doing, but it's God who is making the bond. So let's go back here a second. Man says about Eve, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Think about how they started. They were one to begin with. Then God created two from one. And when we come together in marriage, those two become one again, at least in a spiritual sense, don't we? Not just fancy words that we say at weddings. And it says here, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Notice it uses the word wife here. Wife indicates marriage. There is a pattern for marriage here. There is a pattern here in Genesis 2 for marriage as the joining of a biological man to a biological woman. The ceremony to proclaim marriage, it's different in all kinds of places. If, you know, I've been to um, an Indian marriage ceremony, for, for example, and, and it was very, very different than a North American ceremony that I, that I had been normally used to. And yet it was indicating the same thing. It was the same kind of joining together. God's intent is very clear here in marriage. Well, the obvious question that comes up is, well, what about gay marriage? Now, I, I want to point out that gay marriage is a civil form of marriage, okay? Um, the Bible definition of marriage would not recognize gay marriage as marriage. Because of that, neither does our church recognize that. But we know that you know, gay marriage is fully legal across the country with all the rights and privileges that go with that. But it doesn't meet the definition of marriage by most Bible-based churches, okay? So, so if you wonder where it is that we differ, that's where we differ in how we come at that. The fifth thing I want you to notice here is that they were naked and had no shame. Now, clothes hadn't been invented yet. So it might be kind of obvious that they were naked. But in the scripture, this word naked often indicates, uh, well, it's often used as a euphemism for sex. And so this man and woman, joined by God in the earliest marriage, shared a no-shame sexual relationship. It was God's stamp of approval on it right from the beginning. It's a beautiful thing. And then guess what happens? Then comes the fall. And Adam and Eve sin against God. They disobey God. And they messed all this stuff up pretty good. And so the disobedience of God led to passing the sin nature from generation to gen generation. When we talk about the sin nature, we're talking about this kind of a magnetic attraction that we have to sin, right? This compulsion to sin. And, and it's only counteracted when we finally come into a relationship with Christ. But that change, that fall, it changed the way we relate to each other in many different ways down through generations and until we end up today with this state of confusion that we seem to live in. 
Now, I'm sorry to spend so much time on the Genesis part this morning, but unless we understand what God's intention is, what he said about creation, we really don't have any basis for understanding what he says throughout the rest of Scripture. It all starts right here. This is where we gain our basis for understanding what God has said on the subject of sex and sexuality throughout the rest of Scripture. Genesis gives us a foundation that reflects God's will down through the ages. God's expression or God's creation for sexual expression through one man and one woman together for life in a marriage relationship. Now, as soon as I start talking about that, always people will say, well, what about all those guys who had multiple wives in the Old Testament? You know, it is a good question. It's a, it's a very good and serious question, actually. Uh, how come God doesn't say anything about that or seems not to say anything about that? Well, first of all, let me point out that not everything you read in the Bible is something you're supposed to follow. That there's an awful lot in the Scripture that is a negative example. It's saying, don't do this. Don't live like this. If you live like this, there are certain consequences. Now, I, I love the Old Testament, I think, particularly because it's a warts and all history of God's people. It doesn't try to cover up the fact that these people mess up a lot. And yet God still loves them. And when they repent, he takes them back again. And there's quite a cycle of that. But there are negative examples of what not to do that are recorded in Scripture. And second, if you read all those stories, and you can read every one, put them all together, all those stories about multiple wives that those men took, you will find out that overwhelmingly it did not turn out well. In fact, it was an, an unmitigated disaster. It caused havoc in relationships. Sometimes it caused a mess in the nation of Israel. It caused a personal break in the relationship with God. Over and over, you see that it really doesn't work out well. The other thing I want to point out is that each one of these men who took extra wives, every single one of them would have been very familiar with the creation story. They would have been very familiar as God's people with God's intention in creation for sex and humans. And so they really don't have any excuse. Of course, among Christians... Having one wife was the norm. In fact, having more than one wife, right from the beginning of Christianity, was always forbidden. In fact, we can go back even before, more to that. Um, before that, in the book of Malachi, by the time of the book of Malachi, three or four hundred years before the birth of Jesus, they had already moved to a monogamous situation where no longer did they allow in the nation of Israel to have multiple marriages. Well, Genesis teaches us the basis for a sexual ethic for God's people. You know what I mean when I say sexual ethic? It's, it's a, a way of behaving, a way of living around this particular subject. So I think a, a natural question from that might be, okay, so God established a sexual ethic in the book of Genesis. Does that mean that that continued? Did that continue on into the New Testament, for example? Well, I think to get an answer to that, we need to look to Jesus. Because, you know, in some situations, uh, we might be, we're talking hundreds of years later, thousands of years later. Did this sexual ethic survive? 
Well, what does Jesus say? Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is asked about marriage and divorce in particular. And, and when Jesus responds to them on the subject of marriage, look at what he says. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that in the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So when it comes to questions about marriage, where does Jesus go? He goes right back to Genesis, right back to the creation story, right back to how we were made and, and how we were to live. He's pointing to God's intention in creation. Now, if we had the time this morning, if we were to look further, further you, might, you would find, as you look into the New Testament, that 21 of its 27 books include material related to a sexual ethic. And not one of them allows for sex outside of the lifelong marriage commitment between a man and a woman. Not in a single place in the New Testament. Sex outside of marriage in any other form is referred to as porneia. That might sound familiar because that's the word from which we get the word pornography. Porneia, being outside of the bounds of God or God's law. We often translate that same word as immoral or immorality. Well, we as a people of God, you know, we, we and I love what Rick Warren used to say all the time about, about um, people of faith and people who are not following God. He said, that, you know, we cannot expect people who are not people of God to behave as if they are people of God, right? And that only makes sense. But as people of God, we are called to a life of holiness. We are called to follow God in this way. I want to point out that when it comes to sex or sexual expression in Scripture, there are not multiple standards. There's not a standard for this person or a standard for that person. You know, if we're talking in terms of sexual expression today, there's not a set of rules for God's people, a set of rules for heterosexuals, a set of rules for homosexuals, a set of rules for bisexuals, a set of rules. There are not different sets of rules. There's one standard, one set of callings, if you want to look at it that way, rather than use the word rule. It's the same standard for everyone. God is calling us to sexual purity, and that's a universal call. That's a call to all people everywhere, whether people acknowledge that or not. If you intend to follow Jesus, then you are called to pursue holiness. And that includes obedience to Jesus' teachings and the principles that are taught in the Bible. God says, be holy as I am holy. And we know that that is only possible through a relationship with Jesus. Now, like in every other part of our life, when we miss the mark, and we all miss the mark sometimes. You know, I can go back, I thank God for his forgiveness. You know, because the life I lived before I knew Jesus... Now, I use the word sometimes promiscuous. You may not hear that word used of men very often because we have a double standard, don't we? We look at men and we say, well, <laughs> they're just sowing their wild oats. <laughs> you know, 
they excused the behavior of men while pointing at the behavior of women. But, but I admit that before I knew Jesus, that I lived a promiscuous life. And when I came to Jesus, I changed my life. Or more rightly said, he changed my life and took me in a different direction. And I began to live by a different ethic, not by my power, because I certainly couldn't do that, but by God's power. You know, when we've missed the mark of God's intention, we have the gift of forgiveness. And I'm so thankful for that. God calls us to repentance. I, I've been, it was just reading about this word this week. The word metanoia that we, we translate as forgiveness means a change of heart and mind that results in a change in the way we live. So it's not just up here. It's not just in here. It's out here, right? When we truly repent, then we turn around. We, we face the other direction. We, we move away from our sin, and we move towards God. And with repentance comes forgiveness. With believing in Jesus and giving our whole hearts to God comes life. And then eternal life with God. God's design for sexual expression in humanity is revealed in Scripture in the way that he created us. And the standard is applied to all humans in all ages. But it is especially applied to Christians, to those who say they want to follow Jesus, then there is a way of life. It's the way of holiness and following God closely. And you know, there are some sacrifices that are made when we choose to follow Christ. And there are some changes that need to be made when we choose to follow Jesus. But the benefits are amazing. I know that we've only just scratched the surface on this topic this morning. Just, just a little wee bit. I said to somebody this morning, I, I could preach 10 sermons in a row on this same subject and not even begin to touch everything that should be said. That's why we're doing a class. There's my commercial. <laughs> and, um, and we're going to deal with a lot of this stuff in depth, and Preston's going to help to lead us in those discussions. Um, we're going to stop here this morning. I think we've already got enough on our table to process to begin to, to kind of chew it over and start to think about it. And maybe it'll start some discussion with you um, when you get together, have lunch today. Would you pray with me as we finish? Heavenly Father, I thank you that in Jesus we have a high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. We approach the throne of grace and we ask forgiveness for our sin. And we ask your restoration to your intentions. We trust in your mercy. And we thank you that in Jesus we can reset the clock and we can start over with a clean slate. I thank you, Lord, for forgiving us. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may walk in your path and one day join with you in heaven. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.